Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Absorb what is useful, discard what is useless, and add what is specifically your own. If you always put limits on everything that you do, physical or anything else, it will spread into your life and into your work. There are no limits. There are only plateaus. And you must not stay there. You must go beyond them. Knowing is not enough. We must apply Willing is not enough. We must do. The key to immortality is first living a life worth remembering. Lee John Fon, better known by his American name, Bruce Lee. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and this is another installment of Octonom Verba's Warrior Wisdom. In these solo episodes, I highlight lessons and philosophies from warriors past and present from the battlefields of Italy, Greece, Japan, and the Middle East to modern-day warfare, including tactics seen in business society, and culture. The reality is this, the world is a battlefield, and to not master these lessons leaves you grossly ill-prepared for the inevitable adversity that you will face in the future. Today's lesson comes from one of the most influential martial artists, philosophers, and cultural icons of the 20th century, Bruce Lee. This is my humble attempt to add something of substance to the subject of this legendary man. The martial art that Bruce Lee created is called Jeet Kune Do, which means, in Cantonese, the way of the intercepting fist. And I have been studying this martial art since 1994, and I still practice it to this day. I touch on this fact in my book, The Gift of Adversity, and I also quote Bruce Lee in my TEDx talk, The Gift of Adversity. After reading and studying his writings, practicing his art, meeting his wife, Linda, and daughter, Shannon, learning directly from some of Bruce's original students, including his protege, Guru Dananda Santo, and applying Bruce Lee's philosophy for almost three decades. These are some of the most profound and overlooked lessons from the martial art, philosophy, and life of Bruce Lee. To be able to accomplish what Bruce Lee did is incredible. When you consider that Bruce Lee did all of these things in the short 32 years that he was on this planet, is staggering. And as always, to better understand how he achieved these accomplishments, we first need to better understand the man. Bruce Lee was born in the United States in 1940. His father was a famous Cantonese opera singer from Hong Kong. In December 1939, Bruce's parents went to Chinatown, San Francisco, California for an international opera tour. Bruce Lee was born on November 27, 1940, making him a dual citizen of Hong Kong and the United States. Bruce Lee originally started training in the martial arts with Yip Man, who, if you are familiar with that name, he is a legendary martial artist as well, and there are many movies about him, so check him out. Bruce Lee trained with Yip Man from the age of 13 until Bruce left Hong Kong at the age of 19. During this time, Bruce was also exposed to Western boxing, of which he won a high school boxing tournament in 1959, as well as fencing, which his older brother Peter was involved with. By the time Bruce arrived in the United States at the age of 19, he'd already been exposed to many pragmatic martial arts. But why did Bruce Lee come to the United States in the first place? 
Here's some background. Lee came to the U.S. because, in many ways, he had no other choice. Bruce was of the opinion that you needed to test your fighting skills in real combat to see if they were actually effective or not. Lee was often involved in countless fights in the streets of Hong Kong and actually injured opponents so badly that the police got involved. There were even rumors that he had angered the Chinese triad in some way with his brawls. And whether any of these stories are true or not, Bruce had to face the adversity of leaving his home, family, and friends to return to the country of his birth because if he had stayed and continued to get into the fights in Hong Kong, which seemed to be unavoidable for him because he had built this huge reputation and had a lot of enemies, it seemed it would be only a matter of time until he was eventually in jail or potentially dead. So in April 1959, Bruce Lee went to the United States. Initially, he stayed with his older sister, Agnes Lee, who was living in San Francisco. And after several months, Bruce moved to Seattle in 1959 to continue his high school education, where he also worked for Ruby Chow as a live-in waiter at a restaurant. Lee's older brother, Peter, joined him in Seattle for a short stay before moving to Minnesota to attend college. Bruce completed his high school education and received his diploma from Edison Technical School in Seattle. In March of 1961, he enrolled in the University of Washington and studied dramatic arts, philosophy, and psychology, among other subjects. Now, in the late 1950s and early 60s, most popular martial arts in the United States were known as karate and taekwondo. The Chinese martial arts weren't as well known at this time, which meant there were no instructors of Wing Chun in Seattle that Bruce Lee could find. This led to a bit of a quandary. What was Bruce to do? Should he stop practicing the Wing Chun that he already knew? You also have to understand that back then, it was frowned upon to practice an art without a master to guide you in person. So what should he do? Should he begin a new martial art? and drop what he'd already learned from Wing Chun, boxing, and fencing? Bruce was at a crossroads, and this is a place that every warrior comes to in the hero's journey. This was his crossroads that led him to martial liberation. Bruce chose the path of freedom and practiced what he considered to be true without limitation or hesitation. Perhaps Bruce was emboldened to do this because he realized that he could now practice the arts any way that he wanted to in the United States without fear of recourse from Hong Kong. That's when he started to do the unthinkable. In the U.S. in the late 50s and early 60s, race was still very much an issue. Many Chinese martial artists at the time did not want non-Chinese to learn their art, but Bruce Lee didn't care about that. As the story goes, Bruce's first student, Jesse Glover, an African-American, asked Bruce to teach him, and Bruce agreed. Glover asked him, so you don't care that I'm not Chinese? To which Bruce quipped, I don't care about the color of your skin. As long as your money is green, I'll teach you. Now, Bruce didn't claim to be teaching Wing Chun because he didn't have an instructor credential in the art. Instead, he taught what he called Jun Fan Guang Fu, which, if you remember from the earlier quote, Jun Fan is his actual name in Cantonese. So this translated to mean Bruce Lee's Guang Fu. Now, while this art was heavily influenced by Wing Chun, Bruce was already modifying many of the classical aspects of the art that he found to be impractical. His American students didn't really care what you called it. They just wanted to learn whatever dynamic martial art this lightning-fast upstart was teaching. Lee eventually dropped out of college in early 1964 and moved to Oakland, California to live with James Lee, his friend and one of his first students as well. Together, they founded the second Jun Fon Martial Arts Studio. Now, there's a ton of history that I can unpack now, and like all legendary men, there are all kinds of variations on the story of Bruce Lee's life that I'm covering. I would say, just like anybody else, Take each of these stories with a grain of salt. 
And to skip all the conjecture and save time, I'll just say this at this point. The reputation that a young man from Hong Kong that was teaching non-Orientals spread like wildfire, and the Chinese martial art community in Oakland was none too pleased. Ultimately, Bruce Lee was told to stop teaching those that were non-Chinese, to which he replied, I'll teach whoever wants to learn regardless of race. A line in the sand had been drawn. In 1964, the Chinese martial art community responded by issuing a challenge to Bruce Lee. Fight our champion of our choosing, and if you win, you can teach whoever you wish. If you lose, you close your school and you never teach again. Bruce accepted without hesitation. The challenger that Bruce was to fight was named Wong Jackman. This fight was legendary and it was a big wake-up call for Bruce Lee on multiple levels. First of all, the fight took too long in Bruce's opinion. It took three minutes according to some witnesses. Other accounts said that it took nearly 20 minutes. Regardless of which account you believe, a fight should take seconds, not minutes. Wong Jackman was taller than Bruce Lee, and Jackman's style of fighting was called Northern Shaolin Gong Fu, which is based on long-range kicking and punching. This type of footwork and his three-inch advantage made Jackman very elusive and hard to hit. Bruce Lee's modified Wing Chun style was based on getting close to the opponent to be able to trap their arms and unleash a flurry of punches. The mobility of Bruce Lee's Wing Chun style was very limited, to say the least. Secondly, Bruce Lee was very out of breath. Most of the fights that Bruce had before were very short sprints. Bruce would attack, block, parry, then close the distance quickly and aggressively overwhelming the opponent with quick punches and powerful low-line kicks. In this fight, Jackman stayed away and avoided Bruce's counterattacks, and even at sometimes physically ran from Bruce. Wong Jackman would throw a couple of kicks, then retreat, attack and retreat, attack and retreat, in an attempt to keep Bruce Lee at bay. Thirdly, it was Bruce's outright sheer aggression that ultimately gave him the win. Eventually, he rushed Jackman, threw him to the ground, and rained down punches on Jackman's face until he verbally submitted. This was the final step of Bruce Lee's martial liberation, and after that fight, Bruce Lee became what I call a martial atheist, which leads us to the first lesson. Absorb what is useful, discard what is useless, and add what is specifically your own. Bruce learned from this fight with Jackman that he needed to have better mobility to be able to outmaneuver his opponents and close the gap quickly. This made him focus on the practical footwork of boxing. In fact, as the story goes, one of the best boxers at that time was somebody named Muhammad Ali, and this is the person that Bruce Lee imitated with his footwork. How did he do this? This is an interesting story. Bruce Lee would set up a film projector of Ali's fights. He would then play them on the screen. He would then face the opposite wall that had a mirror on it. Muhammad Ali was an orthodox boxer, meaning that his left lead was forward and he would punch with his powerful hand, the right hand, back on the backside. As a southpaw, which is what Bruce Lee was, that means that he had to have his right side forward. So when Bruce Lee would watch the fight in the mirror, Muhammad Ali was automatically turned into a southpaw. This allowed Bruce Lee to imitate him per movement, punch for punch, step for step. Bruce Lee fought as a southpaw, and this idea came from Wing Chun, but it can also be seen in fencing as well as a lot of Filipino martial arts. Bruce Lee's idea is that he wanted his strong side between himself and the enemy. An example of how Bruce would do this would be that he would throw an attack with his longest weapon, in this case, a sidekick, and he would hit the first target that he could come to, which is often his opponent's knee. Secondly, Bruce knew that he needed to work on his overall conditioning, not simply cardio. Again. 
he employed training techniques from boxing, namely jogging, shadow boxing, and jumping rope for rounds to build the cardio that was needed. But he also began a weight training regimen that added 20 pounds of muscle to his lean frame. This made his punches and kicks even more devastating. One of Bruce's students, Hollywood superstar James Coburn, said, Bruce Lee hit like a heavyweight, even though he never weighed more than 140 pounds. The poetic statement of absorb what is useful, discard what is useless, and add what is specifically your own originates from a question that an early student asked Bruce, which was, what technique is best? To which Bruce replied, listen, I use whatever works and I steal it from wherever I can find it. And while there was a collective laugh at this candid answer, this shows the martial atheist mentality that I alluded to earlier. Bruce Lee did not care how he won. He only cared that he won. And when you're able to accept that truth, it helps us remove the blinders and artificial notions that others cling to when it comes to combat, business, and leadership. Let go of style. Let go of dogma. Let go of what you've been told you were supposed to do. Only pursue the truth regarding what it is that you're working for when it comes to achieving your goal. Also understand that what works for others may not work for you, and what works for you may not work for others, at least at this point in their path. Now, Bruce Lee's idea of combining martial arts wasn't unique. Many styles throughout the ages have borrowed from one another in some way, shape, or form, whether they like to admit it or not. But the very first martial art that Bruce Lee studied, Wing Chun, was one of the first recorded mixed martial arts. It is said to have been created by a female nun named Wing Chun, whose name means beautiful springtime. She combined the most effective styles of Gong Fu to create an effective and efficient form of self-defense to teach the Shoulin monks in the temples who didn't have the luxury of studying a lifetime of martial arts to be able to defend themselves against bandits. Martial arts are very much like religions, and they often don't blend well. If you practice a martial art, say martial art X, and you wanted to learn martial art Y, many schools and styles would look down upon that. Even those that practice the same martial art, the instructors are not usually happy when students go to different schools, hopping around trying to take little pieces from everybody. This is frowned upon even today. The second lesson that Bruce Lee teaches us is this. Knowing is not enough, we must apply. Willing is not enough, we must do. This is right in line with octanon verba, actions not words. Bruce Lee was heavily influenced by the Taoist and Zen philosophies, which is obvious when we look at his teaching, his actions, and his writings. Bruce Lee was more concerned about overarching concepts and truths than specific techniques, and here's why. When martial artists debate style versus style or even technique versus technique, it's usually just a battle of semantics and it's actually a huge waste of time. There's actually a joke that illustrates this. How many martial artists does it take to screw in a light bulb? Three. One to do it and two to say, well, we do that in my system, but when we do, we hold our hand like this. And while this is humorous, this explains how limiting this mindset can be. One of the ways that Bruce Lee was able to accomplish so much in his short life was that he was able to shortcut and hack the subject of martial arts, physical development, and mindset long before the term hack was coined in today's culture. Bruce Lee was able to attain mastery in less than 10,000 hours because he leveraged his expertise in other areas and combined them to create mastery in an area that was completely new, unique, and his own. This came from following the overarching concept of finding the most efficient way to fight, not to have an intellectual debate about hypothetical situations that have no validity in actual martial combat. Another overarching concept that Bruce Lee employed was the idea of decreasing, not increasing. Bruce Lee said, quote, It's not about daily increase, it's about daily decrease. Hack away at the inessential. 
Another quote of his that illustrates this was, I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks once. I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. This exemplifies this attitude beautifully. It is not the number of techniques known that matter. It's the quality of repetitions that creates the mastery in any art. This leads to the final third lesson of this episode, and this regards Bruce Lee's death. As an actor, Bruce Lee became a cultural icon and superstar that set the standard of what modern-day action heroes are today. He single-handedly redefined the martial arts as we know it, inspiring MMA and the UFC that we see today. As an intellectual, Bruce Lee was able to harness the powerful warrior mindset and implement it in every aspect of his life. But we need to look at the life of Bruce Lee as a cautionary tale. Bruce Lee made impact in Hollywood with his first big break playing Cato in The Green Hornet in 1967. This led to feature films The Big Boss in 71, Fist of Fury and The Way of the Dragon in 72. He also began filming The Game of Death that same year. Enter the Dragon was the last film that he made and was released after his death in 1973. Needless to say, Bruce Lee was working himself into the ground on these projects, often working 12 to 18-hour days in the brutal heat on location in Hong Kong. Not only was Bruce Lee starring in these films, and many of them he was doing the choreography, helping write the script, even playing percussion in some of the movies. Each successful film made Bruce a bigger star, which added even more work than the previous film. There was zero time to rest and no time to recover. When Bruce Lee was finally offered his first movie by an American studio, Enter the Dragon, he was running on fumes and under so much pressure to perform, his entire career was resting on this. Yet. He couldn't say no to such an opportunity. It was the very thing that he had been working so hard to get. On May 10th, 1973, Bruce Lee collapsed while doing voiceovers for Enter the Dragon in Hong Kong. Because he was having seizures and headaches, he was actually rushed to the Hong Kong Baptist Hospital where doctors diagnosed cerebral edema. Now, he was able to eventually have the swelling reduced and recovered. But a few months later, on Friday, July 20th, 1973, according to Bruce Lee's wife, Linda Lee, Bruce was in Hong Kong and met producer Raymond Chow at 2 p.m. at home to discuss the makings of the film Game of Death. They worked until 4. They then drove together to the home of Lee's colleague, Betty Ting Pei, a Taiwanese actress. The three went over the script in Ting's home, and then Chow left to attend a dinner meeting. Now, later, Lee complained of a headache, and Betty Ting Pei gave him a painkiller which contained both aspirin and a tranquilizer. Around 7.30, Bruce Lee went to lie down for a nap. When Bruce did not make his dinner date with Chow, Chow came to the apartment but was unable to wake up Bruce. A doctor was summoned and spent 10 minutes attempting to revive Lee before sending him to the hospital. Lee was declared dead on arrival at the age of 32. When the doctors announced Lee's death, it was actually ruled death by misadventure from an allergic reaction to that medication gave him that cerebral edema that put him in the hospital in the first place. Only this time, it killed him. I had the utmost respect for Bruce Lee and the impact from his life's work. He was a man that was beyond driven. He was obsessed with achieving more, breaking cultural stereotypes, and constantly pushing the boundaries in every area of his life. But remember, there was always a price to be paid. And his life, in many ways, is an example of what not to do. The lesson? Yes, pushing beyond your boundaries going to the highest heights that you can, we absolutely need to do that. But when we begin to feel the negative physical ramifications of pushing too far for too long, if we continue on, we do so at our peril. Yes, there absolutely are times that we have to push. There are seasons and there are phases for pushing hard. 
but just make sure that there's an appropriate amount of time to recover, for downtime, to detach, so that we grow stronger, not weaker. Your after-action items for this episode. Number one, regarding absorbing what is useful, discarding what is useless, and adding what is specifically your own. Many today are constantly in a state of learning, which is admirable, but never mistake learning with applying. I see people that are happy to tell you that they read one book a week, yet are not able to recall anything that they just learned from that book. This is a waste of time. So I ask you, are you truly absorbing what is useful from the things that you claim to be learning? Secondly, are you discarding what is useless? Not just the useless material and content. I mean, are you discarding the useless actions, tasks, trivialities, conversations, or even people in your life that are not serving you? If you're a coach, a leader, or an entrepreneur, you must remember, too much of something is the same as not enough. Anything in excess eventually becomes its opposite. Lastly, are you adding what is specifically your own based on your own unique knowledge and experience? If you're not doing all three of these things simultaneously, you're wasting valuable time by being inefficient. Your second after-action item. Knowing is not enough, we must apply. Willing is not enough, we must do. My question regarding this is simple. Are you applying? Are you doing the work? No, really, are you? Could you be doing it better? Are you doing the reps? Are you paying attention and staying present? Are you trying your best to be better than you were the day, the hour, the moment before? If not, set that intention and then get to work. Lastly, Bruce Lee accomplished a ton in his life, but he only lived for 32 years. In closing, I believe that we should look at Bruce Lee's life and impact through that lens of his philosophy, absorbing what is useful, discarding what is useless, and adding what is specifically your own. In this case, the aspect of your own that you are adding is the life, the body, the relationships, and the business that you want to build. It does us and no one else any good to burn ourselves out needlessly in the process of attaining momentary greatness. Now, for those of you that are asking, well, how do I know? How could I possibly know if I'm pushing myself to the point of breaking? The truth is this. Unfortunately, there's no easy answer or specific KPI or key performance indicators that tell you when you're about to break yourself. In fact, I did the very same thing. I literally used my mind to push my body to the point of breaking and beyond when I was preparing to deploy with 10th Mountain, and that left me paralyzed for months. However, I can tell you this. If you can stay in tune with yourself and remain present when you're experiencing adversity, you'll come to the point when you're able to tell when you're no longer able to go on and when you're simply being mentally weak and stopping well before necessary. How do we learn this? By pushing ourselves as hard as we can in every area more and more often. This is why adversity is a gift. It gives us the ability to understand when we're actually about to break and when we're actually about to break through. Thus endeth the lesson. My goal in these Warrior Wisdom episodes is to give you the best quality material that I can create. That means that when I tackle subjects creating lessons around warriors like Miyamoto Masashi, the author Robert Greene, or in this case, Bruce Lee, if they are not necessarily short episodes. But in order to do these men justice, I'm not going to shortchange them in any way. I want to give them the respect that they deserve. And frankly, this episode about Bruce Lee only scratches the surface of this legendary man. I had to cut out tons of material so this didn't turn into a 10-episode series. 
As always, I recommend listening to this episode multiple times and taking notes each time to better understand the lessons and put them into play. Bruce Lee has influenced millions and his legacy has absolutely had a huge impact on my life. And if you put this into play, it'll have an impact on your life as well. Some other guests from Octonon Verba that were directly influenced by Bruce Lee include Tony Blauer, who's a renowned fear expert and martial artist. He was inspired to learn the martial arts after watching Bruce Lee in film, but he also became close friends with Bruce Lee's late son, Brandon Lee. Another Octonon Verba guest, Daniele Bolelli, the podcaster for Drunken Dallas and History on Fire. He's written multiple times about Bruce Lee's influence on him, and he has an incredible two-part episode on Bruce Lee on History on Fire. I highly recommend you check it out. Sifu Dan Anderson, who's an instructor under Bruce Lee's protege, Guru Dan Nosanto, has been heavily influenced by Bruce Lee. He was a great guest as well. Talked a lot about adversity and how the martial arts helped him overcome it. The man of war himself, Rafa Conde, mentioned Bruce Lee multiple times in our interview. And Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Black Belt World Champion and Peak Performance Coach, Emily Kwok, and I talked about Bruce Lee in our interview recently as well. If this episode was insightful for you, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and share this on social media and with anybody that you know that needs to hear this powerful material. Also follow me on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. There's a new Instagram for Octonon Verba Movement. Subscribe to that as well. Also go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com to join the Octonon Verba Inner Circle to get exclusive content and information about my upcoming book, Octonon Verba Apparel, and more. Until next time. Live a life of actions and not words. Live a life of Octa Nonverba. Thank you for listening to this episode of Octa Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media.